0: Now, for the last three weeks, as we have been working our way through Matthew, the theme of Jesus' teaching to his disciples has been focused upon his own return. We come now to chapter 25 and read together verses 31 through 46. Matthew 25, 31 through 46. Let us pray together. Almighty God and our Father in heaven, we ask that you will give to us a sense of awe and wonder as we consider the text before us. Surely, when we see the Lord Jesus coming in majestic glory, we, your people who trust in you, who are saved for time and eternity, will be overwhelmed by the one that we will see. But Father, those outside of Christ, where will they be? May we understand this text, may we apply this text, may your people be deeply grateful for salvation by grace, may those who are lost and undone who may be in our midst today trust in Christ who alone redeem sinners, blessed that our concentration may not be upon the weather, upon the rain that falls, but upon the goodness of your word that has come to us in such rich abundance. May we see Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Matthew 25, beginning with verse 31. This is the word of God. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord... The Lord Jesus Christ is going to return in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel. Judgment is coming. When I say this, there is something that registers in every heart. Every man knows that this is true. Even that man that claims not to believe that God exists. We have been given by God a conscience, and conscience tells us that there is a just God who will execute judgment. Every time your conscience is exercised, it speaks of the justice and judgment of God. Most importantly, judgment is clearly revealed in the written word of God. Now, notice how much of what Jesus teaches in Matthew has to do with the judgment that is to come regularly as we have worked our way through Matthew, we have seen Jesus talk about hell, we have seen him speak of judgment. Today, the church around us is in some doubt about the theme of eternal punishment, but that was not true of Jesus our Lord. He speaks of the eternal punishment of the wicked very frequently, and he has been teaching about his return in this section of Matthew, and now speaks of his return to judge the nations. Have you ever thought about this Where this is placed in Matthew, when we look at the next verses of chapter 26, when Jesus finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. So, what we've read together in Matthew 25 is essentially three days before the crucifixion. Three days before the crucifixion, what does Jesus think it is important to emphasize? Three days before he goes to the cross. He speaks of his return, and he speaks of the judgment of the nations. As we come to this text, we see several things. It's very clear, not difficult to follow. The first is this. When Jesus returns, he will return in exalted glory. Christ stresses this in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Emphasizing glory. You know the Old Testament references to Son of Man. Daniel chapter 7, for example, that exalted divine figure to whom was given dominion and glory and the kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. And in the passage from Joel chapter 3 that we read of how Jehovah will judge the nations, have you ever thought to connect these passages and passages like them so that the prerogative that belongs to Jehovah is now ascribed to Jesus? Because Jesus is Jehovah. Because he is God, the second person of the Trinity that became man, that now is exalted and who will come again to judge the quick and the dead. He is the king we are told in chapter 25 verse 34. He is the judge who will come in glory. You see what we find here in this chapter is that chapter 24:14 has been fulfilled. The gospel has been preached as a witness to all the nations. And all of the nations now are before him after his return. Everyone is there. No one is exempted. Now keep this in mind as we move on in Matthew to his trial before Pontius Pilate and his going to the cross, that this very one who humbled himself to the point of obedience to death, even death on a cross, is the one who has been raised from the dead, exalted to glory, and who will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. When he comes again, he will not come in humility. He will not come in humiliation. He will come in exalted power, and in glory. And we will all be there. I will be there. You will be there. Every human being will be there. Every human being that ever has lived, that lives or will live, will be there. How sinners run from the Lord and from his truth in this life, we sinners that are depraved in need of grace. But there will be no place to hide for those who are outside of Christ in that day. There will be no place to hide when Jesus comes again in glory, sitting on his glorious throne on that day. The second thing we see is that when Jesus returns, he will separate the sheep from the goats. Look at verses 32 and 33. Before him will be gathered, all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. All people are there and all people are like sheep or goats, one of the two. You are one or the other. You cannot be some mixture in between. You are either his or you are not. You trust in Christ or you don't. You are a sheep or you are a goat, one or the other. On that day, sheep and goats were found together out on the hills and in the valleys. You can see Jesus saying, you see the shepherd there. Evening is coming. The sheep can stand temperatures that the goats can't. and So the the shepherd begins to separate them out. And he takes that common everyday occurrence and he charges it with solemnity. And he says, you see that happening? That's what is going to happen when I come again. Upon my return, I will separate the sheep from the goats. The right hand is the place of honor, the place of power, the place of authority. There I will place my sheep, my own. On my left, there will be the goats. A separation is coming. That's what Jesus says. It's coming. It does not come here, not ultimately. But it is coming, the Lord Jesus says. Third thing, when Christ returns, he will welcome the sheep. He will welcome his sheep. Verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Sheep, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, On the day of judgment, you will receive that inheritance that has been purposed for you by the Father from before the foundations of this world were laid in eternity past that He has planned for you and purposed for you. So there is suffering now, but there is glory that awaits. There is an inheritance purposed for you that believers in Jesus Christ will inherit on that day. You know, I was thinking about that just this week as I was talking With Debbie Rivers, whose father just died, whose mother has been so gravely ill, and I was thinking of their faith in Jesus, their trust in the Lord, and I was remembering this passage and thinking about these truths, that for the Christian, even the winter of our suffering opens up to us a new season of greatness and glory, something we've not yet experienced, The whole future for the believer in Jesus is blown wide open. What a glory awaits us. What wonderful privileges belong to us in our Savior, the Lord Jesus. We read of that, of course, in 1 Peter chapter 1. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That is, that inheritance will be revealed when Jesus comes again. But in this text where we see Jesus welcoming his sheep, into that everlasting kingdom prepared for us by the Father before all worlds. What is the evidence that the sheep inherit the kingdom? Those who inherit the kingdom have served the king's brothers. Read again verses 35 and following. And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Now, is Jesus teaching salvation by works? Is he saying you have the right to inherit the kingdom because you've done good things to others? Because you've cared for the poor and cared for the needy? No, he's not teaching that at all. That would contradict everything the Bible teaches about our salvation by grace. It would contradict what Matthew teaches about salvation. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. The Son of Man, according to uh, chapter 20, came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. It requires the cross to save us. It is by grace and grace alone. Well, Paul says the same thing that we find here, doesn't he? Paul, the apostle, no one is more clear on this matter of salvation by grace alone plus nothing, Then the Apostle Paul, and yet Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now what Paul teaches in 2 Corinthians 5, our Lord Jesus is teaching here in Matthew chapter 25. The reason given for admission to the kingdom is not the cause, it is the evidence. It is the evidence. Imagine this. We are all there standing before Jesus the judge on the last day and the Lord points out these brothers and sisters that you believers have have shown care for love for to whom you've been compassionate you see that brother over there that brother needed encouragement you slipped an arm around him and you encouraged him you see that brother over there he was in prison because of persecution and you risked your own life to visit him and bring him something for his needs and to let him know you were praying for him. You see that sister over there, that sister that was in such dire financial need? I know when you slipped that envelope with money under the door and she didn't know from whom it came. Oh, yes, you were compassionate to those around you. Did you show compassion because you thought it would earn salvation? Oh, certainly not. You showed compassion because you had been shown compassion. You showed mercy because you had been shown mercy. You showed love because you knew my love. You showed grace because the grace of the cross had reached down and saved you from your awful sins. And my friends, according to Jesus, that is evidence of our relationship with him. You know, when he says, Truly I say to you as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. The least of these, my brothers, that does not refer to all men. Yes, as we have opportunity, we should do good to all men. That's true, but that's not what Jesus is teaching here. He's not talking about doing good to all men. That's an important subject, but that's not his point here. He clearly is referring to his disciples. In chapter 12, verses 48 and 49, in chapter 28, verse 10, he speaks of his disciples, his followers, believers in Jesus as his brothers. The good deeds shown to Christ's people demonstrates, makes plain, how we stand in relation to the kingdom of God. The people of God have lived this way Because the church is the new humanity recreated by God. Not to earn salvation, but because we have been given salvation. That's what Jesus teaches. Fourth thing. When Christ returns, he will judge the wicked. Verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Now this is Jesus meek and mild. Hmm? Teaching. Even more awe-filled than what we read in chapter 7, Depart from me, for I never knew you. The sheep are welcomed, the goats are banished from the king's presence and sent into eternal fire. Hell, he says, that was prepared for the devil, now the wicked are suited to go there. Jesus Christ, our Lord, teaches the reality of hell. Paul speaks of destruction of the wicked as eternal destruction in 2 Thessalonians 1.9, not annihilation. That's a popular view in the church, that at the judgment, there will be a judgment and then the wicked will be annihilated and will no longer exist. No, Jesus speaks of the punishment of the wicked in that place where the worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. It is anchored in God's own eternal justice. Hebrews 12, 29, our God is a consuming fire. What is the evidence of their hell-deservedness? The evidence, I'm not saying it's the only evidence, but what is the evidence in this text of their hell-deservedness? The evidence of the hell-deservedness of the goats at the day of judgment is the attitude of the goats toward believers in Jesus. Verses 42 and following, For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. as you did not do it for one of the least of these, taking that with verse 40, the least of these my brothers, you did not do it to me. Did you notice something that I just mentioned in passing? Did you notice that in verse 44... The wicked on the day of judgment speak to Jesus as Lord. Lord, when did we see you? Those who despise his truth now, those who despise his gospel, those who reject his word, those who say he's no redeemer, he's no savior, he's not who he claims to be, on that day will call him Lord no backtalk, no sophistication, no argument. Lord, Lord, they will call him. For Paul tells us in Philippians 2 that on that day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When I talk with a person who rejects the gospel and perhaps laughs at believers and laughs at the Bible, laughs at the truth as it is in Jesus, you know, I don't laugh back. Because the day is coming in which they will have no doubt. All the truth that they have suppressed will rise to the top. They will know that Jesus is Lord. Just as the sheep were surprised that the Lord points out their relation to the kingdom by their treatments of Christ's brothers, so also the goats are surprised. In verse 44, then they also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison? They're surprised. Now, someone has rightly pointed out that the surprise of the righteous demonstrates that they in no way thought that their works would save them because their works don't save them. The sheep do not show love in order to be saved but because they are saved. But the wicked are surprised too. How you align yourself to God's people demonstrates your alignment to Christ. 1 John 3.14 We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. And you remember how the Apostle Paul on the Damascus Road was struck down, and there he was confronted with the exalted, resurrected Jesus? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, you read that and scratch your head. He was persecuting the church, not Jesus, but that's the point. In persecuting the church... Believers who are in union with Jesus, they are persecuting Christ himself. That's the point in Matthew 25. You didn't feed that disciple. You didn't care for that believer. You did not show comfort to that one who trusted in me. You were acting that way to me. You were showing something about your heart to me when you did that or did not do that. Jesus wants us to be concerned with the poor generally. That's certainly true. I'm not minimizing that. But again, that's not the point here. The point here is how our actions reveal the heart as related to the people of God. Do you see what a serious thing it is when people say that they believe in Jesus and yet slough off the church and show no interest in those Who are Christ's brethren. Fifth point. When Christ returns, his return will be of eternal consequence. Verse 46. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, do you see the significance of verse 46? There are so many people who say, I believe in eternal life for those who trust in Jesus, but I just don't believe in the eternal punishment of the wicked. I believe in eternal life. I believe in heaven, but I don't believe in an eternal death. I don't believe in hell. Look, the word eternal modifies punishment and life here. You see it? And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. If there is eternal life, there also is eternal punishment. You can't have it both ways. If you say there's no eternal punishment, then of course there's no eternal life. You can't say there's eternal life and no eternal punishment. Eternal modifies both punishment and life. So some say, well, there will be an annihilation. No, the Bible doesn't teach that the wicked will be annihilated. Others say it teaches universal salvation, that everybody will be saved. Well, you know it doesn't teach anything of the sort. Just read verse 46. You know it's not true. There's no universal salvation, everyone being saved, none of that. In Revelation 14, verses 10 and 11, it's put this way. He will also drink. These are those sinners who have received the mark of the beast. He will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night." How many times in Matthew have we seen it? Go back to chapter 13. Let's look at just one passage. Matthew 13, beginning in verse 39b. Jesus says, the harvest is the close of the age. This is chapter 13, verse 39 Now, people don't like to hear that sin has eternal consequences. Frankly, it's not easy for me to preach. But my calling is to be faithful in proclaiming the truth. The scriptures not only do not teach annihilation, but the scriptures never, ever, anywhere teach that repentance is possible after death. Nowhere. As D.A. Carson puts it, sin continues as part of the punishment and the ground for it. God from the beginning declared the punishment of covenant breakers. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. And as one of the old preachers put it, if God did not punish covenant breakers, then he himself would be a covenant breaker. Years ago I read and have reread many times the autobiography of Charles Spurgeon. This is the first volume. When he was a little boy, he read and read extremely well at a very, very early age. And he was reading the Bible every morning for the family as he grew up in his grandfather's home. His grandfather was a very sound minister. So he was reading about the bottomless pit one morning. Grandpa, I said, what can this mean? His grandfather said, Just go on, son. Go on, son. So the next morning, wanting an answer to his question, he read the same text. And the next morning, he read the same text. And the next morning, he read the same text. Spurgeon says he selected the same chapter morning after morning and always halted at the very same verse to repeat the inquiry. The process was successful, for it is by no means the most edifying thing in the world to hear the history of the mother of harlots and the beast with seven heads every morning in the week. <laughs> so finally, his grandfather said, what's troubling you, son? Well, you know, I've seen baskets that have weak bottoms and, you know, the fruit falls out, but bottomless pit... I Spurgeon says, I can remember the horror of my mind when my dear grandfather told me what his idea of the bottomless pit was. There is a deep pit, and the soul is falling down. Oh, how fast it is falling! There, the last ray of light at the top has disappeared, and it falls on, on, on. And so it goes on, falling on, on, on for a thousand years. Is it not getting near the bottom yet? Won't it stop? No, no, the cry is on, on, on. I've been falling a million years and am not near the bottom yet. No, you are no nearer to the bottom yet. It is the bottomless pit. It is on, on, on. And so the soul goes on falling perpetually into the deeper depth still, falling forever into the bottomless pit, on, 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 into the pit that has no bottom. Woe without termination, without hope of its coming to a conclusion. And you say, well, fire's not quenched. Worm dies not. Bottomless pit, just symbols. Yeah, they're symbols. I'll grant you that. They're horrible symbols, awful symbols, awe-inspiring symbols because we don't have language that is adequate to express the reality. Behind the symbol is the greater reality. So let me bring two pointed applications just to... This is an awesome encouragement for God's people. Now notice I said an awesome encouragement for God's people. Because thought of the return of Christ in judgment may bring even to the hearts of God's people in this age mixed emotions. But let me encourage us to the most important thought of all. Judgment when it comes will be accompanied with the visible glory of Christ. And we have been saved for the purpose of glorifying Jesus and living for his glory, and so we should long for this glory at the end of the age. And when you read Revelation 19, you will see the day will come when our hearts will so rejoice in God's justice that the exercise of God's justice will be punctuated by the saints' hallelujahs. The day is coming in which your heart will be so one with God's that you will say amen to the judgment. And right now we often don't see how the Lord is using our witness and the witness of this church, but it's all part of how God is working out his glory and the salvation of the lost and even the reprobation of the wicked. There's much we don't understand, but God is working his purpose out and working all things to that awe-filled moment of Jesus' return in judgment. I have always been moved by the powerful illustration of the Dutch theologian Klaus Schilder about this matter. The arch of God's judgment spreads over this age like a dome. And the judgment of God is upheld by a pillar and that pillar is the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The preaching of the gospel is what keeps this world going as God is drawing his people to himself and building his kingdom. But the day is coming in which the last sermon will be preached. The last of God's elect will be drawn. The pillar will be removed and the dome of God's judgment will collapse. Don't you find that powerful? I do. It's an awesome thing for me to consider as a minister of the word. But for you too. Preach on, pray on, witness on, church of Christ. Because it's all moving to the display of the visible glory of Christ. And if you have questions about these things, and who doesn't? Those questions will be answered insofar as the need to answer them is is found in the heart by your Savior on that day. Right now we live under the Word and what is revealed. The secret things belong to the Lord. Second application. Application. Here we also find an awesome call to faith in Christ, don't we? Our consciences point to the coming judgment. That day is surely coming. Cornelius Venema says, "...the biblical doctrine of hell has nothing to do with the divine cruelty or vindictiveness that takes delight in the condemnation of the wicked in the same way that God delights to show mercy." Those who through sin and disobedience forfeit any claim upon God's favor should look only to themselves to find the occasion for their punishment in hell. Their exclusion from God's blessed presence is a consequence of their unwillingness to seek Him while He can be found, to call upon Him while He is near. And do you begin to see what the cross is all about? The cross of the Lord Jesus Christ can only be understood against this backdrop of hell. You erase the doctrine of hell, you erase right with it the doctrine of the cross. Because penal substitution, which may not be popular language nowadays, but it's language you need to understand, is the great need of your soul. Substitution means he died in the place of sinners, penal means that he paid the penalty. He paid the price. He took the punishment of sinners. So when you read the first three chapters of the book of Romans, up to verse 21, and you find that all of the world is under the judgment of God, divine wrath for guilt, and then you think of something like Lady Macbeth. Walking in her sleep, and she cannot clean the blood from her hands. She represents us all. Now, that's how this matter of the cross is related to hell. In hell, sinners pay for their sins on and on and on without ending. On the cross, Jesus paid the penalty once for all for everyone who believes in him. So here it is. Those who do not trust Christ for redemption pay the penalty themselves and that forever. For those who trust in Christ, the penalty has been paid once for all. Either at the judgment we owe the debt or we look in faith to Christ who has paid the debt. And so your great question should not be, what do men think of me? Your great question should be, how can I be right with a holy God? And the Bible says there's only one way by faith in Christ who died for sinners. Machen said, The beginning of true nobility comes when a man ceases to be interested in the judgment of men and becomes interested in the judgment of God. Do you remember how, all the way back in chapter 7 of Matthew, we found this strange note of authority in Jesus? Here he speaks as if he's God. Well, it's because he is. He's not just a good teacher, he's God, come in the flesh. Well, here you have it again, don't you? This strange note of awesome authority in Matthew 25. Jesus doesn't say, look, it's okay if you just believe that I'm a good teacher. He says, no, you must trust in me. Jesus is making a stupendous claim. I am the only savior. I am the only way out of the judgment. I am the only one who can make you a sheep rather than a goat. He calls you to forsake all other authorities, all other saviors, because they're nothing. There's one thing for sure: you can't be neutral before Jesus. You say, "Yes, I can. I can just ignore Jesus. You think you can. But with the Bible as my witness, Jesus will come again, and you cannot be neutral before Jesus. So either you come to Jesus as a lamb, the sacrificial lamb who shed his blood to redeem sinners, or you will know him as a lion. A lamb or a lion. And a man under the conviction of sin will never be satisfied until he knows that his sins are washed away by the blood of Christ. And that's why, people of God, that's why we who have trusted in Christ will sing forever the Deum. We praise you, O oh God. We acknowledge you to be the Lord. And God's people said,